You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In fiction classes, or in the novelist as humble cobbler image writing workshops, you find that epiphany is a pretty high rate of occurrence. It's a story, it's tidy. At the end, the hero finds himself standing under just the right tree, reaches up without quite meaning to, and plucks down the just the right fruit. But when you tell your own story honestly, that epiphany thing is rare. There is no walk, there is no faded grab. You try every fruit, or forget there are even trees, and wander from forest to forest, losing sight of any destination. The only changes are emergencies or blessings. When you wake up, notice the surroundings, then fall back and wander more. And if you're lucky, you end up walking again through a life where you're never called on to do too much noticing. So there isn't any single moment I can point to that scored when I began to feel better. I think my job here is simply to dredge it all up, to offer a lumpily dutiful retelling of my own life. This is what guilt is like, this is what grief is like, this is how a life forms, when you can't ignore when it wraps itself around one event like a vine clutching a rock. Every direction the vine takes will be determined by that stone. The growth is what you see. But if you look farther down, what you find is the rock. There are times in the middle of the night when I'd come awake and wonder which of us would die first. Cold air above the humidity of the bed, Susanna's mouth open and officially helpless next to mine, and I'd think, me. Maybe this was more than a trick of the mind. Maybe this was Celine. Celine with me, her words hard, posthumous and clear. You, Darren, you are going to die first. Darren Strauss is the author of the novels Chang and Eng, The Real McCoy, and More Than It Hurts You. His new book is The Memoir, Half a Life. Thank you for joining me, Darren. Thanks for having me, Rick. I appreciate it. Darren, the very title of this book suggests something, which is time compression. There's a lot of time compression, time travel, in a sense, in this book. And and it suggests that when something serious happens to you, it it shatters your your perception of moving through a life. Well, yeah, I mean, thanks for saying that. I mean, I think it's called Half a Life for a lot of reasons. One is the sort of literal one, which is that I wrote the book when I was 36, uh, and it had happened half my life ago, the accident. I, I was 18, and I... I was driving on a sunny day to the beach on the left lane of a highway, and a girl on the right shoulder uh, cut across two lanes and into my car and died. So that did change me and and sort of shatter who I was. But I think the key thing is that you realize that these things can change you but not break you. And so you don't want to be shattered by difficulty. You want to admit that it's hard and, and that you're changed but not let it determine who you are. And so, you know, I didn't think I was writing a self-help book, uh, and I, I still think I haven't, but I think if I did my job right, it's a self-helpful book um, uh, because it it's just telling the story about how we deal with grief, and I think everyone has something they feel grief about or guilt. Uh, you know, people feel guilty about a lot of things they shouldn't feel guilty about, even uh, things obviously less spectacular than what happened to me. And so for a lot of people, uh, that's been gratifying to hear. For a lot of people, it, it, it's been... It's been nice to to read a story about someone who's gone through something like this. You, you know, um, one of the things that, that struck me uh, a, as I read this book 
was that um, it takes place during, you know, you're a teenager when this happened. And I, I remember for me, one of the prime right reading experiences of a teenager was reading Kurt Vonnegut's Mother Night. Mm -hmm. And it took away from that, this idea that be careful what you pretend to be because that is what you will become. And <laughs> I think that that is a, a, a prime part of, of how you experienced grief. I think that's exactly right. I th there are ways we can experience grief, but th the, the one constant I've heard from people who have dealt with, with an outsized grief is that they feel kind of performative about it, that there's a uh, part of you that wants to conform to everyone's expectations about how a grieving person should act. And I'd never seen that written about, and so that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. I mean, I went to the, uh, the girl who died, I went to her funeral, because I thought that was the right thing to do. And it seemed like the brave and noble thing to do, to go to her funeral, even though that was the last thing I wanted to do. But now looking back on it, I'm sure it was a mistake, because that was probably the worst thing for her parents, too. I mean, I didn't want to be there, and they probably didn't want me to be there. But because everyone was conforming to what our notions of correct behavior was, I was told I should go to the funeral uh, by this internal voice in my head saying, this is the right thing. And I'm sure her parents were told the right thing is to go and greet him and tell him that you don't blame him. So that was probably painful for them as well, and so I regret that. It's in, in reading this book, I'm struck by the the prose, how beautifully sparse and and restrained it is. And in many ways, this book is really comes as close to poetry, I think, uh, as you can, while still remaining actual prose. Thank you. I, I, I'm wondering if you could talk about creating this. Did this pour off the tip of your pen in this manner, or did did you drop a huge lump that had to be carved down to this size? It came fairly quickly, uh, and thanks for being so nice about the prose. Um, there's a line from William Gass that I always believed, which was, if you're writing, it can't be cathartic if you're doing it well because it's so hard. But I think he's wrong, unless unless I didn't do it well, because I found it very cathartic. I wrote it fairly quickly. I mean, there has to be some shaping, of, of course. I mean, it took me months and months to write. Uh, so quickly is a relative term. It was faster than my novels. But I think... Um, I think Part of what was cathartic about it was making it a, a prose project that I could work on and shape and try to make readable and and try to make the prose uh, as 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 efficient as it could be. Um, and I found out that was something I felt kind of guilty about. But then I found out while I was researching the book that one of the uh, therapies for complicated grief disorder, which is a new way of saying people who are very sad. Um, the, the way that they treat complicated grief disorder today is they have people speak into a microphone, <laughs> kind of like I'm doing now, about the thing that is most painful for them and and then play, the, play it back. They have it into a tape recorder and, and play it back every night so they can listen to it night after night, which sounds like a form of torture. But the reason that they have people do it is twofold. One, telling it in, as a story helps you organize it and make sense of it. And the more important second part is that you can turn the tape recorder on and off, and so it allows you to get control over the event. And so the fact that I was writing this and then turning off the computer every night was sort of um, the way that, that I stumbled into this therapy. And so after writing the book, I felt much better about where I was in relation to the accident than I had before. And I think part of it was crafting it into prose that I could be proud of. You know, the your 
observations of your own state of mind going back through the years as you look at how you felt, I think are remarkable for their clarity and for the way that you, not only is your vision clear, but you allow us as readers, which is a completely different thing than you as a writer, to, to experience this and understand your understanding. So I'm, there's a very complicated kind of translation process going on there. Thanks. Yeah, I think that's really well put. I, um, I don't think I would have been able to write this if it was my first book. I mean, this is my fourth book. And so I re- really tried to use all the tools I had gathered uh, as a novel writer and treat it like a novel. You know, I, I thought, look at yourself as a character and, and examine that character for all his flaws. You know, I, I thought, there's no reason to do this book if it's just propaganda. I have to treat myself as a, as a flawed character and, and express that to the reader. And that, I think, is one of the reasons that people have responded well to it. Uh, there's a part in the book that my editor wanted to, originally to cut. Uh, I was in shock at the accident site, and uh, some girls came up to me, high school girls. I was in high school. And even though there was this uh, awful thing 50 yards away, I started flirting with the girls because I was in shock. And that's something I was always very embarrassed about looking back. And it's still kind of humiliating to talk about uh, but the fact that I could talk about it in the book um, justified the book, I think, because we all have these inappropriate thoughts and inappropriate reactions at times of great distress. And I, I, that's another thing I hadn't seen done well before. So I thought that will be helpful to people and it will justify the project if I can look at myself warts and all. And that was something that the editor wanted to cut because he said, well, that's, that makes you look too bad. But I thought, if I don't make myself look bad, there's no reason to do the book. You know, it, it's so interesting how you you treat yourself in the book as a character and, and also how you plot the book. Because, uh, as you say, I, I, I hadn't thought of it this way, but it, this really does read very much like a novel. And, it's, and there are parts that are absolutely page-turning. I don't want to talk about some of the stuff that happens because I think it's some of the most compelling parts uh, of the narrative. But I'm wondering if you could talk about how much you felt your novels themselves were informed by these incidents. I'm thinking particularly of Chang and Eng. Yeah, I mean... And also to... And how that that feedback loop went for you. Well, there are two parts, I think, to the question. One, I really did um, try to make it... uh, The the challenge was, I think, to make it true and respectful to the event. Uh, and also uh, page turning and, and a good read, and so that was the the ch- real challenge of the book. Uh, there was something you know that you alluded to. I think um, her parents uh, told me that they never would blame me, and that I had to do whatever I did in my life twice as well because I was doing it for two people, which I took very seriously and was very glad that they um, said they would never blame me. And then they sued me for millions of dollars a couple of months later. So that was. Uh, painful, and uh, and I, I knew that would be a, a, a dramatic high point of the book, but I, I didn't want to use it exploitatively, uh, so that was also a challenge. But the books, um, my other books, it's funny, I thought I never would be a, a memoirist. I, I always wanted to write fiction. This was actually a secret I had. I didn't tell anybody about this accident. Even close friends didn't know about it. Um, so I, I, then I decided to write it uh, because uh, of a lot of things. My wife... Um, was pregnant with our, our twin boys three years ago, and, and so I realized more viscerally how it would feel losing a, a, a child. Um, 
and it had happened half my life ago at that point. I was 36, as I said. So I, I started writing it uh, for those reasons. But in writing the book, I did, I realized that all my other books are about this w- without my having known it. Like my, as you say, my first book is Chang and Ang. It's about these two people who are attached in this um, very visceral way. And so, uh, and one, one uh, can't live after the other is dead. And so I think that was... Uh, the reason I was attracted to that story was was my fixation on this accident and my relation with the girl who died. And my second book is about someone who moved to New York City and became a an imposter, changed his identity. And that's sort of what I did. I, I went to college two months after the accident and treated the accident as a witness. I mean, treated college as a witness protection program. Didn't tell anyone. So I was living as an imposter. I felt like. And my third book is about a Long Island family that has this terrible secret. And I was from Long Island and had this secret. So all my books were very obviously informed by this, although very obviously to anyone except me, I didn't know it <laughs> until I started thinking about it when I was writing this book. So I'm kind of anxious about my, what my next book is going to be because there's a line from Saul Bellow I always remember, which is, I don't want to go to therapy because I don't want to know why I'm writing what I'm writing. And now I know, so <laughs> we'll see how it goes from here. It, it, it seems that this, for you, must have been in terms of, uh, of writing, kind of uh, revelatory. It was in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I realized, as you said, what, uh, why my other books were about what they were. Um, I realized a number of things about the accident. Uh, from my whole 20s, uh, I was sure, and probably even part of my 30s, I, grew, I, I got solace from this, this uh, piece of information. Um, when the girl on the bike, uh, I call her Selena in the book, but that's not a real name. So when Celine uh, found, or, or the day before she died, she wrote in her journal, today I realized I'm going to die. And so I heard that. Uh, her parents didn't tell me because of the lawsuit, but I heard from a friend of hers that that was happening, or that that had happened. And so I convinced myself that she was committing suicide, and that's how I just got through life, that she committed suicide and I was no more responsible than than, than as a bullet that leaves the chamber of the gun. Um, but then... As I was writing the book, I realized, well, she probably wasn't committing suicide. I mean, it might have just been a coincidence. That might have just been something sort of adolescent that she wrote in her journal and a sort of adolescent musing. In intimation of mortality. Exactly. And, and, you know, I realized that it doesn't matter to my story whether she was committing suicide or not. And I kind of hope she wasn't because it's sadder for her if she was. Um, all you can do is do your best. And, and so I, I, I've been wondering... There's one-tenth of a second that you have to react uh, in something like this. So if Mario Andretti or someone like that were driving the car, a perfect driver, would he have avoided the accident? I think not because of the one-tenth of a second reaction time. But maybe he could have. Maybe a perfect driver could have could have avoided her. But all you can do in these crucial moments is try your human best and hope that that's enough. And I tried my best to miss her. She, she swerved in front of me. I tried to avoid her, and, and I couldn't. But... I know that I tried my best, and that's really all you can do, I think. You know, there's a, a part in here where you say, the girl I killed, never before had I eased up and stood next to those hard words. That's, uh, it, did this actually happen while you were sitting at the computer? Yeah, I never had been able to say that, that phrase. It's hard to even to say now, the girl I killed, but um, I realized I was doing all these linguistic contortions to sort of avoid 
saying that, you know, the the girl on the bike who happened to be driving on the same road as me uh, on that day, or whatever I would say, but um, the book was about facing up to the accident and the terrible things that happened, uh, and how sort of paradoxically you get better by sort of facing the hard things and, and admitting that they're hard and, and admitting that you're changed by it, but not ruined. You know, there are so many interesting observations in this book, and, and I think that comes from the way the prose is distilled down. Uh, I mean, I, I think you could probably take like a, about five cards with the sentences printed out in 16-point bold type hmm. that you could hand to it anybody who's grieving, and I think that would really actually truly help those persons. Well, that's very, very kind of you to say. Uh, uh, that's been the best part about the book. I mean, I, uh, I've i gotten emails from so many different people, hundreds of emails about about uh, personal stories from people who are suffering. I got one from a woman who lost her daughter in a bike accident, very similar to the the, the accident I was in. I didn't think that someone in that position would, would find comfort in the book, but, but she did, and that was gratifying. And an email from someone who had come back from Iraq and was suffering from post-traumatic stress and, you know, all kinds of things. And so uh, a woman whose brother committed suicide, is, it's just been so wonderful to write a book that has, has helped people in that way. And it's foreign to me because I write fiction. And so the emails you get after fiction is, I liked the book or I didn't like the book, and that's it. It's not people pouring their soul into, into their emails, which has been a bit overwhelming. I mean, there's a lot of sadness out there, and so that's been sort of tough, but um, but it's incredibly gratifying that people have felt they could share their, their personal pain with me. A lot of people who didn't, who say they haven't told love, loved ones these things are telling a stranger via email, so that's that's just been um, flooring to me, just, just a completely uh, uh, gratifying doesn't do justice to it. Well, you have a, one of the things you say that, that I think is really interesting is tragedy turns life into an endless publicity tour, <laughs> and I think that has to do with this, the the mask that you have to wear in order to just get through the day. Yeah, and, and not just get through the day, but um, but to survive it uh, in a way that you're happy with or proud of. You know, uh, we, I think, un- I think mistakenly do too much to wear that mask. I mean, we we act in ways that we think are society- societally tolerable and sometimes to our detriment. And so part of the book, I think, is... is getting people to understand that they should act the way that feels right for them and not necessarily feels like society is telling you is right. I mean, I wrote this book, I think, for the 18-year-old me um, because I wasn't going to write it, as I said, and I did I, I did something for This American Life about the, the, the accident, and that was really going to be it. I was going to be done with it after that. But I got these emails and, and people thanking me, and so I realized I should examine it more and write a book about it uh, because... If I had a book like this when I was 18, it would have helped me. And so that's really why I... I and that sounds self-aggrandizing, but that, that's really why I did it. People asked... The few people I would tell asked, well, how do you get through something like that? And so the answer is the book. You know, um, the, the immediate and obvious answer that society hands to us is therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll confess that I've never... Myself, I've never... Therapy seems to be superfluous, so you might as well. It, there's nothing that somebody can tell tell you <laughs> that you can't tell yourself. And and you had when coming out of the accident, they you went to a therapist, and that didn't prove to be very helpful, did it? <laughs> I had a really bad therapist. I mean, I think the therapy can be very helpful for a lot of people, but um, I had this guy who uh, 
I don't know, two, three days after the accident, took me in his Porsche to the accident site and sped uh, along and showed me how fast his car went, uh, which was probably not <laughs> the best uh, Freudian methodology. Uh, um, you know, I say in the book, uh, this was in Long Island, so I, I don't know if this was if this speaks badly of the profession in this Long Island psychotherapy where all problems can be extenuated by making good time in the LIE, so I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, it was it was very bad and painful. Uh so, yeah, for me, therapy was, was the book, really. Now, one of the things, uh, let's just talk about your sense of the incident, because I think you write about it more than once in the book. We, we, we see it from a variety of perspectives. And I think that's one of the things you do, and this, I, I alluded to this earlier, was, was talking, was the, this kind of splintering of time, uh, the way you experience this when it happens, and then the way your memory lets you experience it through the years. Uh, could you talk about that evolution? I think one of the things that I, I'm guessing that actually writing down the words about it must have made a, a huge difference to you uh, because you're a writer. There were things I didn't remember that I remember now, which is really interesting. Uh, yeah, the act of sort of sitting down and trying as hard as you can day after day to remember it. Um, and face what I was embarrassed about. I mean, like the 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 girls and the and the that I flirted with was something I, I didn't remember in much detail until I started writing it. Um, you know, fracturing time is is a really apt phrase. I mean, there's still gaps in my memory of that day. I mean, I remember the accident and I remember uh, certain things about it, but there are, there are parts that I just have blocked out. Um, and I say in the book, and I think this is true. Uh, I think the the brain wants to heal what is an effective bruise, and the bruise is the memory, so um, that's what shock is. I, mean, I, I hadn't seen shock written about well before, and that was another reason I wanted to do the book. I think there are different kinds of shock. Uh, there's this sort of system junking you feel at the beginning where your 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 uh, circuit breaker goes out. You don't feel anything and allows you to flirt with girls and not know what's going on. But then after that goes away, you still feel it a little bit. Um, I talk about in the book as being kind of a muffling blanket that's thrown over you. You, you don't know you're in shock necessarily, but um, you're not fully present. You know, um, one of the things that, that I think is interesting in terms of the, the techniques that you use, writerly techniques, is that you, you talk about things in footnotes. You put footnotes into this book. And that was something that the editor wanted to cut out. I mean, I, I didn't want to be... I'm a big David Foster Wallace fan, and I think the risk of anyone who's a Wallace fan is that you over-footnote things. But there were a couple of things that I thought um, needed to be in there that didn't seem like part of the main narrative. I mean, sort of extra-textual things about how what grief means and, and how I was dealing with it now, and sort of side notes that just didn't feel right in the main text. Well, I, I think footnotes are so interesting. I, I mean, when you read the book it's a, it's the experience of like kind of exploring a cabinet in some ways and then the the footnotes are like these like elaborate little uh, engravings like <laughs> on the outside or something and, and i think that uh, it in terms of the reading experience it gives the reader a way to step back and take in a lot of the other stuff that's been going on because reading this book is a very powerful and intense experience itself. Thank you. I mean, that that's been the the 
interesting thing too is uh, you never know how it's going to be received. But I um, I did an interview about the book, and the interviewer started crying talking about it, which was so moving for me. Um, and my cousin, who didn't know much about the accident because I didn't talk about it, um, so his favorite part of the book uh, was the footnotes because um, he thought it was neat the way that I sort of threw in some adult perceptions there. I mean, it's it's funny. The the first draft of the book had a lot more footnotes. I think there were 30, and now there are, I think, four. Mm. Um, so I, I tried to integrate them into the text, but, but there are some that needed to stand aside, I think. For a book that's about your life and, and you know, your grief, there's, you know, just, uh, I think it's interesting to a certain extent what's not there in great detail. I mean, this is a book that covers 18 years of your life and and a traumatic incident in what, uh, 180 pages or something? I can't remember. In very few words, in 30,000 words. Very yeah. few words. I mean, I uh, I wanted just to do a book about the accident. I, I did this book with McSweeney's for a uh, small San Francisco-based publisher Dave Egler, Dave Eggers uh, company. I did it with him for a reason. I usually publish my books with Penguin and uh, have a good relationship with them and probably will publish fiction with them again. But they they wanted to do the book. And then I said, okay, well, it's going to be a very strange book, I think, because it's going to be very short. I just want to focus on the accident. I don't want to write a memoir. I'm not a big memoir fan. So I want to just talk about this, this, this event and how it shaped me and how I think people can learn from that. Um, and my editor at Penguin said, well, it has to be 200 pages because we need to do a paperback, and it's got to, we got to just make it that length. And so I said, well, what if it's 40 pages, 50 pages? He, he said, well, we have to pad it out, then you have to write about your childhood and add some stuff in. And I said, that's certainly not how I want to do a book about this subject. I really need to be respectful to the event and to the to the girl and, and to myself. So I, I just didn't want to do it. So I thought, I guess I won't do the book. And then Dave Eggers uh, and Eli, who, who runs McSweeney's, called me and said, you know, we we heard you want to do the book. We'll we'll do it at 30 pages. We'll do it at 40 pages. Whatever length the book needs to be, we'll do it. And it ended up being 200 pages, so I, I could have done it with Penguin, but I think I would have been able to write it had I known that they had this commercial mandate. You know, I wanted just to explore and, and do it from completely pure motives. And so I'm very grateful to McSweeney's that they were able to do it and, wa- and wanted to do it at whatever length I thought was right. You know, one of the things that interests me about this book is that as a writer, you're self-aware of your readers and, and address them uh, on, on occasions. Uh, and you, you, at one point you say, see how the forgiving brain, brain runs this sentence, runs on this sentence even now. And, and I think that's uh, an interesting approach to, to, to like, not just to say, dear reader, but to be aware that there's a person engaged in this in a reading experience. Well, I thought that was the only way to do it. The only way to justify doing it is to make sure that I wasn't being self-aggrandizing and to think at all times about how the reader would react to the work because I wanted to make sure the reader... I wanted to make sure I wasn't being exploitative. I wanted to make sure I wasn't trying to profit from misery. And and so I, I was very conscious of how the reader would take it and, and what each chapter was supposed to do for the reader. And, and hopefully I... I, I achieved it. I don't know. We'll see how, how readers react. Now, now, you have a family of your own. You have two boys, and there's some beautiful moments uh, with your family. And I think this is, uh, it's interesting to see, you know, your own character development. And you do this pretty ruthlessly, I think, and well. How, I mean, did, again, did this, was this something that 
happened as you wrote? Yeah, again, I really thought, I, w- I wouldn't have been able to do this as my first book. I wouldn't have wanted to because I, want, I wanted to sort of, I'm glad I sort of developed a career, uh, so I'm sure in my own mind that I'm not using this to get published because I, I you know, I have a book contract for other books. Um, but the only way to do it was to use my my skills as a novelist, and so, you know, look at me, look at the young me as a character in a book, and how is he flawed, and how does he, what kind of epiphanies does he come to? I mean, I mentioned in the thing you read that there are no easy epiphanies. It's not, it's not a, a tidy piece of fiction, but there are things you learn. And there are ways you change. And so in order to be honest, I had to be ruthless to myself. And w- the fact that I have twins is very interesting. I mean, I I wrote my first book about twins. Uh, and I think I wrote my first book about twins because of my uh, relation with Celine, my attachment to Celine, to the girl um, who died. So the fact that I then had twin boys of my own, I think, is, is sort of divinely uh, perfect in some way. Yeah, and... Also, one of the things I think that makes this book, I think, so superb is that you, it, parts of it are kind of funny. <laughs> well, I had to tamp that down. I mean, I, I, I usually try to be kind of funny in my books, but I wanted to be <laughs> respectful and, and, uh, and serious. But uh, at the points where I, where I wasn't talking about the accident, uh, I did want to at least lighten the mood a little bit for the readers and poke a little fun at myself and at at the awful uh, psychiatrist who took me on the in his fast Porsche and uh, and my high school reunion, at, uh, you know, when I went back to school, I, I thought both as a strategy um, for the reader's benefit, I should lighten it a little bit, and also um, to show that life is multifaceted. I mean, you're not you're not um, even though while you're dealing with something like this, you're not you're not wearing black all the time for 18 years. I mean, it, it, it's something that's upsetting, and, and you'll never forget it, and it will change you, but you're, you're not living a one-note life. I'm curious. Have you started writing a, a new novel? Did you Were you writing fiction when you were writing this? I mean... I was writing short stories. I, I have a collection of short stories that I'm supposed to hand in soon. Um, so I was writing fiction on the side, but uh, I want to do something really light and fun. It's funny you mentioned humor in the, uh, at the end. I... I thought this in my last book, More Than Hurts You, which is about Munchausen by proxy, which is where a uh, uh, a parent injures their child on purpose to get attention. Um, both those books are pretty dark, and so I, th- I think my next book is going to be something light and maybe adventure I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like fun. I've been speaking with Darren Strauss. His new book is Half Alive. Thank you for joining me, Darren. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.